0: Today on the show, I'm going to talk about Vipassana meditation and a story from my journey with it when I spent 40 days meditating in a cave. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Please share the podcast with a friend, rate and review it on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the content that I'm providing for you, please make a donation. Go to the Story of Me podcast dot com. And on the contact page, there's a donate button. Make a contribution to help support the expenses. And you can also go to the website to submit your questions for the show and to follow me on social media. There's all the links. Okay, so now let's get to it. Welcome to the story of me with Amarjit Singh. This is where my guests and I share personal stories from our life and explore the psychological insights that were learned from these experiences. Each story will entertain you as well as increase your understanding of your own psychological patterns. Then, through the principles of yoga psychology, you will learn how to overcome the resistance that is holding you back from living a more fulfilling life. Join me every Tuesday for a new episode where I share my experiences in psychological understanding, interview guests, and answer listener questions. Now let's get started with the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding. Welcome to the show. For new listeners, my name is Amarjit Singh, and I am your host. And for old listeners, welcome back. It's good to have you. Well, thank you for joining me today. I hope everyone is doing well. Today, I'd like to talk about Vipassana meditation and my experience with it, and I'll tell you a little story about 40 days that I spent meditating in a cave. There are many forms of meditation, as many of my listeners might know. Uh, You have different types of yoga, different types of meditation, with some different purposes, but mainly all the same purpose, but just different perspectives and different ways to arrive at the same conclusion, and that conclusion is to recognize the truth within. My experience with meditation started from a young age. Before I really knew I was meditating, I would just close myself in a dark room and just let my mind go, not recognizing that I was actually meditating, but I thought, okay, this is just a way to, I don't know, find some peace or or to center myself. But it was a form of meditation that just kind of came naturally to me. Then as I got older, I started to become conscious of meditation and would try to just sit still for some moments and try to stop thinking. And as anyone knows, when you try to stop thinking, what happens is that you continue to think. And so this was challenging to say the least. And I think this is the problem that most people have, is really learning how to stop the mind. How do you stop that mind from moving? And when you put that intention of stopping the mind and, and try to forcefully stop it, it doesn't work so well. You know, thoughts keep coming up, and then we start to think about the thoughts. What what am I going to do when I'm done? What did ha- What happened yesterday? What do I have to do tomorrow? And we start to relive things that we've already done or things that we expect to do. We start to think about. And this is what is kind of called participating with the thought. We enact the thought, the thought arises, and then we start to play it out. We start to follow it by participating in the thought. And really the way to stop thinking is not to try to stop thinking, but actually to allow the thoughts to come up without participating in them, right? Is to just observe them as if you're sitting on the bank of a river, and you're watching the water pass by. You don't try to control the river. You just watch it. You observe it. And the same thing with your mind. When a thought arises, just observe it. Don't participate in it. Don't think about it. Just observe it like you're watching the river pass you. And eventually, the thoughts will stop, maybe only for a few seconds or a minute in the beginning, or two minutes or three minutes. But what is meditation, as Osho used to say, is the space between thoughts. And what you want to do is you want to lengthen that space. And in the beginning, maybe it's one minute or 30 seconds. And eventually, you want to be able to not think for hours. And this was always my objective is how to go deep enough to let go of the thinking, let go of the thoughts that arise and then what is underneath this? What experience lies beneath the thoughts? We're trying to hear the subtle experiences that are happening within. We can say we're listening to the unconscious mind trying to tap into our intuition, trying to tap into the collective consciousness, to understand our journey, to understand what is going on with us. And so my experience, like many others, was to try different types of meditation. But when I started my journey with kundalini yoga, this was the form of meditation that really spoke to me. I was able to really learn how to be in the moment. And if you've experienced kundalini yoga, you know that some of the meditations are with mantra, some are with breath, and some are with movement, and some are very still. And so there's many different forms. And, And just like in other types of yoga, right? You have mantras that you chant or you focus on the breath, and this concentrates your mind or creates a particular environment within you to connect to a particular vibration and these are very effective there's no uh, all these forms of meditation are, are effective but for some people they speak louder than others and it's important to find the meditation form that speaks to you that you connect to and There are some forms of meditation that are suitable for particular types of people compared to others, but it's just a matter of trial and error. And today I'd like to talk about my introduction or my experience with vipassana meditation and also tell you what vipassana meditation is so that you can understand it because I think it's an important form of meditation, but also it's a good way to understand the connection between the mind, the body, and your consciousness. Because we look at yoga, and what do we do in yoga? We we try to align the body so that the life energy, which we call prana, flows through the body properly and doesn't get obstructed through blocks in the different chakras or the different areas of the subtle body. And these happen because we have psychological issues that are related to a particular chakra that creates a density within the chakra so that the prana is unable to flow through it properly. And so what we do is we stretch the body in these different asanas or these different postures, trying to realign the body and trying to work out the blocked emotion and to release it so that the prana flows freely. And so typical to yoga, what you're doing is you're working the body to get to the mind, right? You're trying to cleanse the body so that the mind becomes clear, so that you release the attachment you have to all the trauma and the emotions that you're holding on to. And we can see this within the flexibility of the body, the movement of the body, the difficulty in holding particular postures. You may have noticed that there are some postures that are very difficult for you and may be easy for other people. And vice versa, there may be some postures for you that are very simple, but for other people, they struggle. And you can see this in the class when you're looking at the people around you. And the reason for this is because they're Karma and their experiences are different. And so they have different blocks in the body, different resistance that is preventing them from holding the posture or getting into the posture in its full uh, way. And another thing the asanas are, are geared towards is to help you release all this so the mind becomes still, at least a little more still, so that when you sit to meditate, that the mind is more clear and this is the big part of yoga is to prepare the mind in the body to meditate and, and this is why after a yoga class or when you're done with the asanas it's easier to go deeper into the meditation because you've released a lot of the tension the resistance that you've been holding on to So, a few years before I moved to India, I happened to catch a documentary on the internet, and it was called The Yogis of Tibet. Now, you can go to YouTube and watch this documentary for free. It's streaming online. I'll put links to it in the show notes. If you forget, you can go to the show notes and follow the link. And it's a documentary about the Tibetan yogis. And one aspect of this is that part of their training is to go and live in a cave for two and a half years and meditate and so they meditate in this cave all day people drop off food to their cave and they don't really do anything but meditate for two and a half years now when i saw this i i, I wondered what must your mind be like after meditating for two and a half years without doing anything else spending all day just meditating, and some of them even sleep in the meditative pose. So I thought this would be very interesting. I would like to experience this somehow, and that was my extent of this documentary, but I found it quite interesting to understand how these Tibetan yogis really approach self-realization with this dedication, with this commitment, and with this discipline. And then when I moved to India, a person that I had met, which became a a good friend of mine, told me about these Vipassana meditation retreats. And this was a way that the Buddhist would meditate. And this is what I knew about it. And I said, well, this is interesting. It's a 10-day meditation where all you do is meditate for 10 days without speaking. And so it's about 10 hours a day for 10 days meditating. I thought, I want to try this. I want to experience what this is like and try this method of meditation. I knew nothing about it. And so my first retreat was in India. It was in Bodh Gaya. I think I've talked about this on another episode. And Bodh Gaya is the place where Siddhartha, Gautama sat under the Bodhi tree and achieved Buddhahood. And so this city has a very special energy to it. There are many monasteries there because of this. And you can still go to the Bodhi tree that Siddhartha sat under and achieved Buddhahood. And I've done this, and I told some stories about this on previous episodes. And it's a very interesting place because of the energy there. This was my place of introduction to Vipassana meditation. And just like Buddhism, there are many different interpretations over the years of Buddhism. And the same goes with Vipassana. Vipassana was the form of meditation that Siddhartha Gautama used to achieve Buddhahood. And so he was searching for years and trying different forms of meditation to achieve self-realization. And, like many of the Buddhists say, is you know, you have these attachments to different things, whether it's uh, something that you want or something that you don't want. You have this aversion, which is an attachment, or this desire, which is an attachment. And before Siddhartha, they would just say, well, abstain from these activities. Okay, if you have a desire from something, just don't do it. And this will remove this desire or will help you elevate you beyond it. And this is part of it. But what Buddha recognized is that it wasn't the object or action that you had the attachment to. It was the sensation that occurred when you interacted with this object or this action. And this is just like saying that it's not alcohol that someone is addicted to, but it's the experience, the sensation that it brings that you get attached to. And so we're attached to these sensations. And like I've said in many episodes, your body is a bunch of particles that are vibrating. And this is what Buddha was able to really experience, is that your body is vibrating at a, such a fast speed that all these atoms appear to be solid. But really, they're not. They're just individual atoms vibrating. And what happens is that you observe something from one of the senses, whether you see something, you taste something, you smell something, you feel something, or even you think about something, and it brings an experience, it brings a judgment. I like this, or I don't like this. And if it's I like this, you have this desire for it. And if it's I don't like this, it's this aversion for it. And like anything that you look at or, or that you observe from one of the senses, it creates this this thought, whether it's an unconscious thought for most people or a conscious thought. And then this thought creates a vibration. And this vibration creates a feeling. And we call some of these feelings emotions. And I always give the example of anger because it's a very simple example to understand, and it's one that we all experience at some point in the life, some people more than others. But what happens when you get angry? What happens to your breath? What happens to your heart? Right? The breath gets deeper, gets heavier, gets faster, and the heart beats harder. Well, why is that? Why does this happen when you get angry? But like I said, you observe something from one of the senses and then you react to it. And this reaction creates a feeling, a vibration. And this vibration will appear somewhere in the framework of the body, depending on which aspect of the psychology it is dealing with. And so anger appears in the heart area, the chakra, the heart chakra area, and The vibration of anger is very dense compared to, say, the vibration of prana. And what is prana? But prana is the life force that animates everything that is alive. So when you go to pick up something, you send this energy to your muscles to contract and to be able to exert the force to pick something up. Prana is the energy that goes to the muscles. The better you are at concentrating this energy, the stronger you can be. And this is why when you're tired, maybe you're you're not as strong, because your concentration is not as good. And we try to learn how to control our prana through pranayama. And this is through different breathing exercises. But... Don't confuse the prana for breath. Prana is not the breath. Prana is the energy that animates the lungs. It's the energy that animates the different organs. And we try to control the prana through pranayama, through the breath, because the breathing, the lungs, are the only organ that we can operate consciously or unconsciously. Right? When you're sleeping, you're not thinking about it, but you're breathing. But if you... Concentrate on the breath, you can focus the breath and you can breathe purposefully in different breathing patterns. So, this control of the breath is really learning how to control the prana that is animating the lungs. Because when you're able to master this, then you are able to control other organs within the body and other body parts. And so, this prana is necessary to animate all the different organs. So when you get angry, the anger is a very dense vibration compared to the prana. The prana is a very subtle vibration. And the dense vibration starts to restrict the flow of blood to and from the heart, and it restricts the capacity of the lungs to expand properly. And so now you have to breathe harder in order to fill up the lungs, and you have to have the heart beat more. faster and deeper so that the blood is able to be pumped to and from the heart. And so, if anger is a habitual problem for you, the residual imprint of that anger will stay there, restricting the flow of prana. And after years and years of this, you will have heart trouble or lung trouble. And so, this is the process of how emotions, which we call emotions, but really just feelings, because everything is a feeling. And there are feelings that we don't have names for that you experience. There are feelings associated with everything because everything, every vibration is unique. So a thought creates a vibration and that vibration creates a sensation and each thought has a different sensation. And you can see this in a very coarse way when you have good thoughts or very negative thoughts. The whole body starts to feel different. The mind starts to feel different. And so this is how you start to understand how the body is representing the psychology. And so in Vipassana meditation, what you're doing is you're trying to experience the psychology in the framework of the body and I'll talk about this so like I said in Buddhism there there's many interpretations of it and the same thing with vipassana meditation the interpretation of vipassana that I did was the one that was promoted by SN Guenka who was an Indian businessman who began doing vipassana and, and started to really promote it and He created an organization that's in every country almost. In India, there's so many vipassana meditation centers, but they're all over the world. And he created this these 10-day retreats to introduce people to this technique that Buddha used. And I will put links in the show notes for the Vipassana meditation centers that Gwenka created. And they're all donation-based. And so you can go there for your introduction to this method of meditation, and it's a 10-day retreat. And it's very effective, and it's very challenging, because the first few days, you just want to leave. Because it's difficult, it's challenging to sit still for 10 hours a day and not speak. The mind starts to play tricks on you, And all the insecurities, all that self-doubt comes up, and all the excuses of maybe I should be somewhere else. Maybe this is not the meditation for me. Maybe I should, I should, I should. And this is how it goes. But usually if you can get past day four, then it becomes easier. And if you repeat the experience, then it becomes a little easier sometimes. It depends on what you're experiencing, and what you're going through. It's interesting when you see new people in these uh, retreats, because after each meditation, you know, we take breaks, and you can see them getting more and more cushions to put under their knees, to put under their hips, because they still think that all this discomfort is coming from the external. But what you realize in the really purpose of this meditation is to understand that the discomfort the sensations the pains are coming from within and the more you resist them the more difficult it becomes and so we'll talk a little bit about this but to begin with when you go into these retreats the first thing you do is when you do these vipassana retreats is there's two types of meditations that you do The first one is anapana meditation. And so you do one third of the retreat doing anapana meditation. So for a 10 day retreat, you're doing three days and maybe a quarter of anapana. And this is the preparation for vipassana. And so how do you prepare yourself? What is anapana meditation? And this is a meditation to learn how to focus the mind how to concentrate the mind. Because what happens when you sit down to meditate, like I talked about in the beginning of this, is the mind wanders. It goes from here to there, from what you're doing yesterday to what you're going to do tomorrow, to last year, to what that person told you uh, last week, to what you're going to tell us next person next week. And the mind is a monkey mind jumping from branch to branch. And it's hard to concentrate it. And so you need to learn how to concentrate it before you can really begin the Vipassana meditation. And the way you do this is by concentrating on the breath. So you start to put your attention on the breath going in the nose and out the nose. And you're concentrating on any sensations in this area of the nose. Any sensations that happen anywhere else in the body, you're ignoring And you're just concentrating on this small triangle of the nose. And when the mind wanders, because it will, you just bring it back. So you'll start to concentrate on the breath going in and going out and the sensations it's making as it goes in and as it exits, as it goes out. And then the mind starts to wander and you bring it back and again, resume. And in the beginning, maybe you concentrate on this breath for 30 seconds and catch yourself daydreaming about something, and you bring it back. And what you're trying to do is to get a full minute of concentrating on the breath before the mind wanders, and then to get two minutes, three minutes, and trying to increase that so you can hold this concentration on the small area of the nose as the breath is going in and out. And you do this for about three and a quarter days in a 10-day retreat. And this helps you learn how to concentrate your mind, how to hold the concentration. And, And you'll see how the mind plays tricks. You won't even recognize that you are daydreaming. And after two minutes, three minutes of daydreaming, you recognize, oh, I'm not focusing on the breath. And you bring it back. And so you do this for a while. And then you begin the Vipassana part of the meditation. And so what does the word Vipassana mean? It means to see things for how they really are. Because what we do is we see them for how they appear to be. But what we want to do is we want to see them for how they actually are. And again, this is learning how to observe the body and how to observe the sensations within the body. Because what Siddhartha Gautama uncovered is that it isn't the object and abstaining from this object that is going to bring the enlightenment, but it was to let go of the sensations. Because we play these games, and I've recognized this in Other people, you'll recognize this in your daily life, right? Think about you have an argument with someone or some kind of disagreement, and what happens? You get into some discussion with them, and then the rest of the day, you're replaying this discussion in your mind, and you're saying, oh, next time this happens, I will say this, and when they say this, I will say that, and when they say that, I will say this. And I will show them that I'm right and they're wrong. And we do this for hours, for days, for weeks, for years. We do this for a long time, holding on to these thoughts. And why do we do that? It's because we feel that that argument or that disagreement or that experience we had didn't turn out like we wanted it to. That person got the best of us. And so now we're replaying this conversation in our head, and we're creating a different outcome or a different way of looking at it, saying that when they say this, I'll say that. And next time, this will happen, and I'll show them how right I am and how wrong they are. And we're doing that because we're playing games with ourselves. We're playing games with sensations because you feel hurt because this person or this experience got the best of you. And you're replaying it in your head because it's creating sensations that feel good. Because you don't like the way the sensations that are happening feel right now. And so you're playing this game of sensations. And you're trying to, just like a drug, you're trying to change the way you feel through these thoughts. And this is what we do with drugs, right? And alcohol and different experiences is we don't like the way we feel, and we're trying to change it through some substance, some experience. And so what Buddha uncovered is that we can observe these sensations in the framework of the body and try to not react to them like we do when we experience them, right? If we have some experience that every time it happens, we get angry, And it creates this vibration in the body that's still there at some level. When we experience this physically in the physical form, we can observe it without reacting. And if we do that, we try to get to the neutral space, which in yoga we call shunya. And this neutral space has no judgment. And when we're not having judgment, that sensation dissipates or just turns into a sensation. And this is what happens when you sit down to meditate. You sit down and you meditate, and the leg becomes sore, or the hips become sore, the knees start to hurt, or the back has a pain, and you keep trying to adjust. And what you're doing is you're reacting to it. And that physical pain is a manifestation of some psychology. And if you don't react to that physical sensation, then it's like not reacting to the psychological, and it dissipates, it goes away. And you become neutral with it. And then you can go deeper. And so this way of meditating, this vipassana, what you're doing is you're allowing these sensations to happen. In fact, you're looking for them. You're observing them. And when you observe them without reacting, then they will eventually dissipate or go away. And the psychology that's attached to them, as long as you're not reenacting that habit pattern with your experiences, will go away as well. And so it's a way to remove the psychology through observing the sensations that are created from it in the body. And so for the vipassana part of the meditation, what you're doing is you're going point by point throughout the whole body with your concentration. So after the three days of, three and a quarter days of meditating on just the breath and learning how to strengthen your concentration, then you take that enhanced concentration and go through the body to try to observe a sensation in every part of the body. Because right now, there is a sensation in every part of your body, but your conscious mind is not sensitive enough to feel them all. Unconsciously you feel them, and this is why you're moving when it's unnecessary, because you're feeling uh, the emotion, you're feeling something, and it's causing you to react. But when you're sitting very still and you're concentrating on the body part by part, you start to observe these sensations, and you start to encounter very painful or very coarse sensations. And if you don't react to them, then you hit this neutral space and they will resolve. But you have to not have aversion or attachment to them. So if you're saying, oh, please go away, please go away with your mind, what you're doing is you're reacting to it. This is the judgment that caused the sensation to begin with. And so this reaction (laughs) That you're having with the sensation is the reaction you had to the psychological part of this sensation, the origins of the sensation. And so in the beginning of this retreat, you're just going through the surface of the skin and trying to feel sensations everywhere in the body. So as your mind becomes more concentrated, you start to go deeper and you start to penetrate the body and to feel the sensations within the organs, within the deeper parts of the body. And so it's a process of just going through the body for 10 hours you're doing this, starting from the head, going down part by part until you reach the feet, and then going back up. And it's really a powerful form of meditation. I highly recommend it to everyone, to try at least one 10-day retreat, but especially for people who are very reactive emotionally, who are very sensitive, because you have to learn not to be reactive in this form of meditation at such a subtle level that it really helps you throughout your life. It's really powerful. And in fact, I'm going to put a link on the show notes for this other documentary, which is a documentary when they instituted this form of meditation into the prison system in India. And I've seen this documentary, I think, about five or six times, and it's really powerful to see the effects it had on these people who were in prison and and to understand the impact that this form of meditation can have for you. And that's why if you're a very reactive person, I say definitely try this because it's not going to be easy for you. The opposite, it'll be more difficult for you than maybe other people, but you'll get more out of it. It is very important. And so this brings us to the foundation of this practice. And in the language that Buddha spoke, which is Pali at this time, we have these three foundations to the practice of vipassana, to Buddhism. And one is sila, which is the moral conduct. Because when you're letting go of these sensations or this attachment to the sensations and trying to become neutral, the way to really let go of this karma also is then to not create more karma for yourself. And so this is moral conduct. Because if you're doing this meditation and then you're engaging in all these practices that are creating more of these psychological sensations in the body, you're, you're going to harm yourself. You're harming yourself. I mean, who is the first victim of your anger but you? And so this moral conduct is for you to make sure that you're not creating more karma. And I won't go into too much depth in this, but when you take the Vipassana meditation retreat at the Guenka centers, he has very good discourses. That each night after the 10 hours of meditation, you do a, a discourse or you watch a video discourse of him talking, and he goes into depth about all this. Because really the way Buddha would teach Buddhism is that the theory went along with the practice. So many people say, oh, I'm a Buddhist, but they just understand the theory. And this is not really how Buddha taught. He said, I only give enough theory for you to understand the practice because the practice is the the, the aspect that you need to learn. And so, again, you listen to these discourses and Guenka speaks on these and it's very good. He He explains them very well. The second part of this is samadhi, which is concentration of the mind, because the mind needs to be concentrated, and it needs to be pure. So you have sila to create the purity of the mind, and samadhi to concentrate the mind, and panya, which is the wisdom or the insight that happens when the mind is concentrated. And so when you do these meditation retreats, at least for me, I can speak about my experience because everyone's experience is a little different, is that you come out of them and you feel lighter. It's it's really physically letting go of these heavy sensations or these attachments or these things that are embedded in your body, these vibrations that are your karma. And each retreat you do... You let go of a little more, and as long as you're living a moral life, a good life, and not creating more karma, you're letting go of this karma. So as you're doing this form of meditation, each of these vibrations, each of these, especially the very strong vibrations are the ones that are the most difficult to release, are these really ingrained habit patterns in the psyche your karma, your samskaras. And as you release them through not reacting to the physical sensations, then as long as you're not recreating them in your life, you've let go of this karma. And then you're able to go deeper and relieve the deeper layers of your karma. And so this is what Buddha discovered, is that you're just this vibration, and he was able to penetrate the depths of these vibrations until he went through all of his karma. And then what appeared is he started to see his past lives. He started to see the truth. And this is what you understand through this form of meditation is the truth as it is, not as it appears to be through the framework of the body using the body as this tool to recognize the psychology of the mind and to let go of the habit patterns of the mind through the body. You know, we often say, oh, I'm not flexible enough to touch my toes or to do this position, but unless you have some physical deformity or or physical injury, it's the mind that is holding you back because if you were to put yourself in a hypnotic state of mind or an altered state of mind, you can do these positions. And so what is the difference? The difference is the mind, not the body. Of course, there's certain physical abnormalities and there's certain physical limitations, but generally speaking, it's the mind that limits you, not the body. And the more flexible the body is, the more flexible the mind. And so this is what you're doing with this form of meditation is you're accessing the mind through observing the body. And so this is what, also what Buddha talked about, about mindfulness. This is another thing that's often misinterpreted. Because we say to be mindful, to be aware that you're doing something, and this is part of it, but it's only one part. It's not just being aware of what you're doing, but being aware of the sensations that are happening while you're doing it. So when you're being mindful, when you eat, means to feel the sensations that are happening in the body as you're eating, because you start to notice things. I know for me, I noticed this desire building up in my body, and that I was eating with this desire. And you can feel these sensations that are happening. and You try to relax them. You try to not be attached to them and let them go and you start to eat and the sensations change but this is with anything is to observe the sensations this is really mindfulness in fact a good vipassana meditator or a vipassana yogi is aware of the sensations all the time even as they go to sleep mm-hmm. my own journey with Vipassana meditation, like I said, started when a friend that I had met told me about the Guenka retreats, the 10-day retreats. And I did the first one in Bodh Gaya, and it was powerful. And my concentration after 10 days was incredible. And it was one of the strongest experiences I had meditating to, to that point. And I fell in love with this form of meditation. It was really, it really spoke to me. And so I was hooked. And I did, I think in three months, I did another three or four retreats, which you're really not supposed to do that many retreats close together, especially when you're beginning. But I couldn't help it. I was so... uh, affected by this form of meditation, and it had such a huge impact on me. And I I remember after doing this, I took a train to Dharamsala in India in the mountains. And I was in Dharamsala, and I was getting into a a guest house, and there were some people hanging out there, and I started to speak to them. And one guy said, oh, where are you coming from? I said, oh, I just finished a 10-day retreat. And I said, wow, but I want to do you know, a long retreat. And I told him about this documentary about the yogis of Tibet. And he said, oh, I know a place. I know a place you can go and you can meditate in a cave and and do long retreats. And so I got the information from him and I contacted the person who kind of manages these caves. And it was this German guy. And it was in the birthplace of Hanuman, it's called Hampi. It's in, I guess you say the south of India, not completely south, but maybe as far down as Goa. It was maybe four hours east of Goa, but uh, in, in but down there, and I was all the way in the north. So I went down there and uh, rode my motorcycle all the way down from, from Rishikesh, the north of India, one time all the way down to Hampi, which is the birthplace of Hanuman. And I'll put some pictures of this place and the place that I gave the retreat or did the retreat on in the show notes because it was a very special place and I had a great experience there. But it was this mountain in this natural bird preserve where there was a German guy who had this small house, like a one-room house, at the bottom of this hill or this mountain And there were probably about, I don't know, 10 caves, 8 to 10 caves, somewhere around there on this mountain. And what he would do is he would put food on the wall for you twice a day. And so you would climb down the the mountain or the hill and get your food and eat it. And, And so he would prepare it. You wouldn't see him. You wouldn't see any of the other people in the caves. I don't know if there were really many people in the caves when I was there. I think I saw a couple times I saw few people, but you're quite isolated in your section of the mountain. And when I went there, I said, okay, I want to try for 40 days to to meditate for 40 days. And I was well into doing this form of meditation, the Vipassana meditation, because it wasn't right away that I did this. I did many more retreats in between, before this. In fact, when I drove down from Rishikesh to Hampi on my motorcycle, I stopped because it was about a, a one-week drive. I think it's it was about uh, 1,500 kilometers or something like this. And so in India, this it takes a long time to do. So I, I stopped on the way and did a 10-day retreat at one of the Guenka centers to prepare myself for the 40 days in the cave. But I had been doing it, I think, for a couple of years— because I wanted to make sure I had the discipline to do it by myself without the teachers. Because this takes a a lot of discipline, right? You're meditating for 10 hours a day, and when you're in the the Cuenca centers, you have someone ringing a bell outside your door at 4 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning to get you up, and so you're constantly managed this way so that you make sure that you keep to the schedule. But I had been doing... This meditation for a couple of years, and I, I my discipline was pretty good, so I was not worried about this. And so I said, 40 days, I'm going to do this in a cave, which is the real way that the Tibetan yogis did it, where they don't see anyone. Because when you're in the Gwenka meditation centers, you're not allowed to talk to anyone. In fact, you're supposed to look down when you walk around so you don't catch the eyes of anyone or you don't look at anyone. But you can feel the energy of all the people around there, around you. In fact, you do a lot of projections, at least I did, of projecting personalities onto the people who are meditating around you. And this is your own psychology. But when you're in a cave, you're alone, and you're just in silence. It was very different. So to get to this cave, you have to call this person and then they have to, they picked you up somewhere because there's no way to really get to this place to find it without this person. And this is done so that no one can bother you when you're in your cave. And so they pick you up and they took me to this place where the cave is. And basically you're sleeping on the floor of this cave. And then there was places outside of the cave on the mountain that I would meditate depending on the time of day because of the sun and and the the weather. And then twice a day you go down at certain times to pick up your food and you have to get there very fast or the ants will (laughs) take your food from you. And, And so you do this and you don't see anyone. And for me this was interesting because I had never really camped out At this point, I'm not a person who goes camping. And so just to be sleeping alone in this cave on this mountain, I was a little nervous at first. And it took me about a week to really relax because you see all the different insects, the spiders. You hear the rats moving around in the cave. And you have all these sounds and you don't know what's going to happen But then you you start to relax and you start to recognize that there's kind of this vibration in nature and no one really wanted to bother you, except for the ants. The ants don't care. They'll attack you no matter what. But you see that the spiders move away from you. The rats didn't bother me. And so you start to have this kind of harmony in the cave that I experienced, or harmony with nature, because you become very sensitive and this is one of the most uh, impactful things for me was the sensitivity that you build up and I really recommend that everyone should spend some time alone at least a couple days out in nature. And when I say alone like the retreats you have no books, no music, no pencils, nothing because you're supposed to be dedicated to just going within no distractions. You know, if you have a book to read, this is a distraction. It's going to change your thinking. If you have music, all this you take away. So I left all my belongings, my computer, and this house at the bottom of the hill all locked up. And I just had a couple of pairs of clothes. And that was it. And so you build up the sensitivity to nature, which is really interesting. I had this experience. uh, One night I woke up. uh, I don't know if it was one in the morning or two in the morning. And I was hearing techno music, like really loud techno music. And I thought, where is this coming from? There's no houses in within sight, there's nothing within sight. And so I get up and I'm looking around, looking around, and I start to think, well, sometimes during the day, the sheep herders walk by and they have their mobile phones playing music without any headphones. And so you hear this and I thought, maybe this is what I'm hearing, but it's at night. And then I realized that there was no music. What I was hearing was the wind through the trees and the sounds of nature, and it all had this rhythm that was so loud because my ears had become so sensitive to not hearing anything that it sounded like music, and I mean loud music. And it was really a strange experience because it was, sounded so loud and it had this rhythm to it. And so these are the kinds of experiences you start to have, not to mention, you know, I did 40 days, and you're meditating 10 hours a day for 40 days, and it's strong. It's very powerful, and it takes a lot of discipline, and it's exhausting as well, the concentration. And it's a great way to lose weight. I lost so much weight because you're eating two very tiny meals a day, and you may think, well, you're just sitting and meditating, but it's expending a lot of energy. And I think I have a picture, maybe I'll post it, of me getting on my motorcycle and I left the cave, and I weighed probably the same I did in high school. It was, I lost, I think, about 25 pounds, 30 pounds, and I'm a, not a heavy person. I'm a skinny person, so that was a lot. I could see at the end of their treat, my ribs coming through my skin, and I started to worry because I was losing so much weight. But it, the first 20 days went by very fast. But then when you get to day 20, that was actually a difficult day because you think, oh, I got halfway done. But then you think, well, I have halfway, I have 20 more to go. And so it took me a couple of days to let that go. But uh, when you stop thinking of the days, it goes by much easier. And, you know, you go through difficult times when the meditation is hitting some difficult aspects. Like I said, in Vipassana meditation, you're going deep inside the body. And when you start to uncover some deep samskaras, some deep karma, it becomes heavy, it becomes difficult, it becomes challenging, because you want to avoid this, right? This is the things that you've been living with this life, last life, who knows how many lives. And so it becomes challenging. And so I would go through days of really just experiencing particular sensations related to certain aspects of my karma, and and this was challenging. And one day I'll talk about these on a different episode. But when it got to, was it night thirty-seven? You know, when I would lay down in the cave to sleep, I was sleeping on the ground, but I had fashioned a mosquito net around me because there were mosquitoes. But not so bad of the mosquitoes. But I had this net, and I was sleeping on the floor. And you would hear noise in the cave. You would hear lizards go through, and in the corners of the cave. There were dry leaves, and the corner, the the cave went down into these corners were really dark. You can't see in them, and I would hear the noise of the leaves moving, and I would say, "Okay, that's the sound of a lizard," or that's the sound of the spider, because you start to understand how they sound and how they move. And on night thirty-seven, I heard a noise that I didn't recognize. And I was sitting there thinking, "What is this noise?" I just laid down, and and I was taking my flashlight and trying to shine it into the corners of the cave to see if I could see what's going on. And I go, "It's." I think it sounds like a snake, and I couldn't see it. And as I pull the flashlight back, I see about three feet from my foot a snake going past me. And this snake was. As, almost as thick as my—well, it was a little thicker than my leg, my thigh, and the snake was about 10 feet long, and with all these beautiful colors, I shined the flashlight on it, and in the dark of night, with the flashlight shined on it, I saw these fluorescent greens and purples and black. And I do have to say that because the snake was going past me and out of the cave, it looked much more beautiful than it would it would have— coming towards me in the cave. And I've never seen a snake this big before in person. And it was interesting because when you would see a a lizard or a spider and they would recognize you, they would move quicker or in a different direction. The snake didn't care. It just slithered the same speed in the same way. It didn't care. And I looked at this thing and wow, It was some kind of, it was a, what I was told was a boa constrictor. And it was going out of the cave, and this was night 37. If this was night one, I don't know if I would have stayed there for 40 days. Honestly, I don't know. But night 37, I said, okay. The only thing I was really afraid of, not so much that it would attack me, but that, you know, when you walk out of the cave, there's a lot of grass and a lot of trees, and you're kind of, walking this little path that was made out of, out of the cave. that And when I would leave the cave, it would be, you know, four in the morning, and so it's not bright out yet, it's dark. And I was afraid that I would step on the snake by mistake, and it would think that I was, I'm attacking it. And so this is what I really worried about. So when the snake left the cave, I just made some fire at the entrance of the cave to make sure it didn't come back that night and then just was very careful walking out of the cave the next three nights to make sure I didn't step on it. But I wondered, was this in the cave the whole 37 days with me? And where did it go when it left the cave? And then I started to wonder, because after I left the retreat, I looked up on on the Internet the symbol of of the snake. The symbol of the snake represents wisdom, represents your spiritual guide, or the journey, and so I wondered, was this really a spiritual guide that came to me in night thirty seven or was it really physically there? I don't know, I really don't know, but wow, it was incredible and one other strange experience I had is so that on day forty, I went down to the bottom of the mountain and got my phone and my iPad so I can take some pictures. And they were all stored in this house. And so I took them, and I took some pictures, and then I was in the cave, you know, going through the pictures. And what was really interesting is you build up the sensitivity to nature, and when the computer was on in this cave, I can feel the electricity very strong. And not only could I feel it, but all the insects and animals in the cave felt it and they started to attack me. All the insects started to attack me and I had to turn everything off. But it's interesting how you build up the sensitivity to feel it. What's more interesting is this sensitivity that you lose when you're out in society and that you don't feel it because it was really strong. And you think with all this internet, Wi Fi, and these electronic devices around you, what is really doing to you, because it was quite powerful in this cave after 40 days without it to turn it on. And like I said, I recommend that everyone go for a couple days with nothing, even if you don't meditate 10 hours a day or do some other form of meditation, even meditate one hour in the morning, one hour in the afternoon, and one hour at night or something like this and just hike around, but be by yourself. No talking to anyone, no one there, no pencils to write with, no music, no books, and really learn how to connect to yourself. And it's really powerful. And that was one of the most important meditative experiences I had is that 40 days. And maybe in one episode, I'll, I'll talk about some of the lessons I learned in that experience of 40 days, but it's powerful. And I recommend that you look into this Vipassana meditation, like I said. Even if you just try the one 10-day retreat and never do it again, I think you'll get something out of it that will last you your lifetime. And even if it plants the seed for the next life. And what I would like to end this episode with is a recording of Gwenka, the man who promoted all these meditation retreats and these centers him talking about the first words that Siddhartha Gautama said when he achieved Buddhahood. Because he talked about how he was meditating and he started to see the past life and then the life before that and the life before that. And he saw that he was running from life to life, trying to find the answer of how to understand this experience, how to stop this reincarnation, this cycle of reincarnation. And so this is a beautiful explanation by Gwenka, chanting the words of Siddhartha Gautama when he became Buddha.
1: The first words, when he became fully enlightened, the first words of Buddha, are so wonderful. Every word of Buddha is very wonderful. But the first words, what were the first words of Buddha when he became enlightened? These tenjas also you will be listening every day, at least three times a day ghe karak dittosi, punenge hang ne kasi, sabbate pasuka bhagga, ghe kutang visankitang, visankaragatang chitang, tanehanang khayam ajaga, ane kajati sansarang. Now that was the night, full moon night of the month of Veshaka, when he was sitting under the tree, observing the truth inside, as one goes deeper and deeper, purifies the mind, purifies the mind. Certain faculties of the mind increase. One faculty is the memory of the past. By the time he was, he had passed the midnight, this faculty arose. He started seeing his past. Not only this life, but the past life. Second past life. 10th past life. And like that kept on looking at his past, 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 countless lives. And then he says, Anekajati Sansarang. In this flow of the world, I have taken so many times birth, birth after birth, birth after birth. Oh, so many lives, countless. Anek means countless, not just one, countless. Anekajati Sansarang. Sandhavishan. And every time I have taken birth, I kept on running. Running, anibbisang, incessantly, without stopping. Everyone who takes birth keeps on running, keeps on running towards the death. As soon as you take birth, you start running, running, running towards the death. You can't wait even for a second. Let me wait now. I don't go towards death. You can't wait. You have to keep on running, 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 incessantly towards the death, without attaining anything, without achieving anything. And then in some of the lives he found, some wise people told him, That all this circle of birth and death and misery, you can come out of this, provided you can witness the creator, the great creator. So, many a lives, he kept on searching this creator, who is the creator? Gahkarakangave the creator of this house. What house? Every time one dies, another house is ready. Every time one dies, another house is ready. Gahkarakang, who creates this house? Gahkarakangave in search of the creator of the house. Dukha jati puna puna again and again. I kept on getting birth, full of misery, full of misery in this plane or that plane. Everywhere misery is there. Even at the highest planes, celestial planes or Brahmic planes, the misery of the old age and the misery of death is there. You are not totally out of misery. Gahkarakaditho Oh, builder of the house, now you are seen, I've seen you. se Ka Hasi, You can't build any house for me anymore. You can't build. How can somebody build a house for you? They must be building materials for that. Some timber or steel or cement or mortar. I've destroyed everything. se Hasi. phasuka bhagga. I have destroyed all the building materials. You can't make a building for me. What are the building materials? My mind is now free from all the saṅkharas. The saṅkharas which are responsible for a new birth are totally eradicated. And the craving is rooted out. There is no trace of craving left. So no more new Sankharas, old Sankharas are all eradicated, dedicated and I can't generate new Sankhara now, that is the stage of full liberation. And anyone and everyone can reach that stage, but one has to work, one has to work. Not just by craving and not just by praying. not that some miracle will happen and one will get liberated, one has to work, each individual has to work and work very seriously.
0: I'd like to tell you about sing flutes. These are flutes that are made by me. They are handcrafted, Native American style flutes designed for sound healing. The flutes are tuned to the frequency of 432 Hz, the harmonic intonation of nature. The fundamental note of each flute is in a key to vibrate a particular chakra. Whether you are playing for others or yourself, listening to 432 Hz music resonates inside the body. In fact, they did a medical study where they hooked people up to a brain and heart monitor and played different instruments to them. The Native American style flute had the most impact in relaxing them. If you're a yoga teacher, it's a great instrument to incorporate into your classes. What I do is I have an app on my iPad that has the sounds of nature, and I'll put on the sounds of rain and play over this to the students at the end of the class. It's a very intuitive instrument to play. There's no musical... Knowledge necessary to get started. Each flute is unique since they're handmade. I put different artwork on them. I put mantras on them related to the chakras that they're tuned to. So go check them out at singflutes.com, S I N G H F L U T E S.com. Use the discount code The Story of Me podcast and get 10% off. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the program. And uh, any Vipassana yogis I have, hey, send me a message, let me know. And for those that aren't, send me a message, let me know that you tried it and how you found the experience. I think it's a powerful experience that you should try at least one time in your life and commit yourself to it. Don't leave the retreat no matter what the mind says. Don't listen to it and this is what you have to do is learn to not listen to the mind and i talked about this on the episode of how to experience yourself beyond the physical body and the mind and this was really helpful information if you're going to do vipassana to listen to so you can go to the story of me podcast.com and submit your own questions give me some feedback let me know what's going on with you the listeners and also to follow me on social media. There's links. Like I said, I'm going to be doing a YouTube channel where I'm going to do some videos, so subscribe to the channel, and shortly I'll start putting together some videos. And if you're enjoying the content that I'm providing, again, please make a donation. Help me cover the expenses of the podcast. Go to the storyofmepodcast.com On the contact page, there's a donate button. And that's it. All right. Until the next time, from the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding, allow love to be the current that carries your words and actions.